This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And the NAACP says Florida is openly hostile and travel advisories slamming DeSantis. Yale professor Jason Stanley, author of How Propaganda Works, stops by to talk about where he sees our politics heading. Then we'll talk to The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik about his latest book, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. But first we have legendary campaign manager, The Lincoln Project, Stuart Stevens. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Stuart Stevens. Thanks for asking me to party, Molly. Great to be here. You know, I continue to be a fan and friend. I want to talk to you about uh, the Republican primary contest. It's heating up. Yeah, I've done five of those. (laughs) One was on the winning side four times, lost one. What was the winning one? Bob Dole. Okay, that was right. Against our truly triumphant victory against Pat Buchanan. Yeah, that was a good one. After losing New Hampshire to Pat Buchanan, we finally began to beat him when he started holding large caliber weapons over his head at photo op (laughs) in Arizona and wearing a cowboy hat. If you can imagine any guy lived his entire life in D.C., you know, a classic Catholic family wearing a cowboy hat and holding like a Winchester over his head. It was sort of absurd. Then I worked for George Bush. I moved down to Austin in 99, where we brilliantly managed to take a 65-point lead into New Hampshire and lose by 19 with John McCain <laughs> while outspending him three to one, which I have to say, you really have to get up very early in the morning and work at that. It does not happen by chance. What went wrong? McCain made the decision uh, to only focus on New Hampshire and basically run for governor of New Hampshire. In the way that all life imitates high school, when people like you, you like them. And he completely ignored Iowa. I predicted at the time that by winning Iowa, whoever won Iowa, you would get a bump and that that would compensate for any sort of slingshot you above what was happening already in New Hampshire. That theory proved to be sort of like Gravity is a regional phenomenon. It, it <laughs> Bush won New Hampshire. I mean, won Iowa. Not very prettily. Uh, nightmare. We did the whole Iowa 
caucus thing, but we did the Iowa straw poll thing the year before, which is one of the great scams. And then we went to New Hampshire and McCain, this was at its peak when he was doing the Straight Talk Express. We would go, we would sneak away, like me and Mark McKinnon and our crowd, you know, we'd sneak away and go to McCain rallies. And then we go to our Bush rallies and we're like, oh, they're having so much more fun. <laughs> Actually, it's an interesting little moment there. You know, for reasons that are complicated, we had stopped polling at the very end, in part because we didn't know what we were going to do differently. I got a call from the other side as, you know, I have a lot of friends over there working for McCain on the day of the election from their pollster, a good friend saying, look, I'm, you know, I'm sorry about this. This is, you know, not going to be easy. I said, well, I said, yeah, we're going to lose. And then there was kind of a pause. He goes, oh, you don't understand, do you? I said, what? <laughs> You're going to get crushed. <laughs> crushed. I said, well, like more than five? And there was another long pause. He goes, the question is, will it be 20? <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, okay, great. So, you know, I went and told the governor and our little crowd. And Bush actually did it. You know, I was going around saying Ronald Reagan won New Hampshire and fired everybody. We're fucked. And Bush got a little group together of us that afternoon. And by then, exit polls were coming in to confirm it. And he said, uh, look, you know, I screwed this up. You guys screwed this up. It's going to be a really bad night. But the only thing that's going to piss me off, if I, if I hear anybody else in this room bad-mouthing anybody else in this room. This is my fault. We're going to lose. We're going to go down to South Carolina. We're going to win. And a year from today, all you guys are going to come to the White House, and we're going to laugh about this, and you're going to get drunk. I don't get drunk anymore, but we're going to put this behind us. So forget it. It's over. Oh, wow. And it was, you know, one of those moments when a campaign could have fallen apart. You know, you walk out of that room just wanting to, like, kill for the guy. He was right. We went down to South Carolina. We won. And then I did Bush when he ran, um, which wasn't really much of a race. We really wasn't a race for re-election in the primary. And then I worked for Mitt Romney in 2008. I got involved late in the campaign. That was after Mark left because Mark had a deal with Mitt. He wasn't going to help him run against Obama. That was only for McCain. Oh, that was only for McCain. Yeah, he, okay. McCain he was running for McCain. And then we lost. And then, to my surprise, Romney decided to run again. Romney was not planning to run. People think, oh, you know, Mitt Romney must have immediately started planning to run. It's really not the case, you know. The guy ran. He lost. He dealt with it. He decided he wanted to write a book. And they bought this place out uh, in California, sold a house where they brought up the kids, like a typical thing. You know, the five kids had all graduated, all left the house. They're empty nesters. And he was happy as a clam sitting there. I used to go down and visit him there down in La Jolla, sitting in his kitchen by the beach writing this book. And I never thought he'd run again. He only just, he only ran again, really, because the economy was so bad. We're in this different time right now in American history that seems very dark in a lot of ways. Oh, that. <laughs> I mean, like, this is sort of like saying in 1860. I don't know. Maybe bad things will happen. <laughs> Let's dig into that a little bit. I mean, it seems so crazy that we are we're going through normal political machinations when one side really doesn't believe in democracy anymore. I've been working on a new book. I've been thinking about this a lot and reading a lot about this a lot. Um, and one of the keys when democracies slide into autocracy is the ability for autocracies to use the freedoms of a democracy to kill that democracy. And a case in point would be the Trump town hall. They want this appearance of normality. And to me, this is a great challenge for journalists in the 2024 race. It has the patina of being a normal political race. You have both parties. They still call themselves the same thing. Whereas one has become an autocratic movement and one has no basis in truth. Our system and you, you know this better than I, of journalism, always the greatest good was objectivity. And it is not equipped to handle this. All my journalist friends, and, and you have more and closer than I, are struggling with this. It's not a normal race. And one of the challenges is how to talk about it without sounding alarmist. And, you know, I always say it's, it's, it's like a pandemic. Whatever you say at the beginning will sound alarmist and at the end will be inadequate. Yeah. God, that's a good point. 
It is the greatest danger we face since 1860. It's not a Trump phenomenon because the party has now become Trumpist. If this played out according to sort of classic form, Trump wouldn't be the nominee and they would probably go on to DeSantis because it's typical you know, for autocratic movements to sort of in their next stage move to a more cleaned up version. Right. Exactly. This week I did a bulwark event with those guys and I am constantly having the same fight with Sarah Longwell again and again, which is she says that DeSantis is less dangerous than Trump. And my argument is actually he's 10 times more dangerous because if you see what he's done in Florida, Trump could never have done that, could never have figured out how to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, I had a back and forth with David Frum about this because David wrote a piece basically saying the same thing for The Atlantic. The plus side that I hear, and you talk to Sarah, you can tell what she said, is he's not crazy and he will function like a normal politician. I don't think not being crazy is really the standard. But also the fascistic attitudes are still there. So now I'm going to pull back and ask you a question because, you know, yesterday at Red Fleece Vested, Glenn Youngkin burst onto the scene, not having announced, but having a video that certainly looks like he's about to announce. Yeah, I mean, Glenn Youngkin is a parable of what happened to the Republican Party. He's the kind of guy at a time in my life I would have loved to have as a client. Seems like a normal human being, had a lot of money, nice to film. But look, so what happens to what happens to Glenn Youngkin? So here's a guy, you know, comes out of corporate world, Carlisle, saying guy. But to advance in this party, he ends up in Arizona standing next to a total fucking lunatic, Carrie Lake. <laughs> Knowing that Carrie Lake is a lunatic. And you have to do that. It's not that... Yunkin changed Terry Lake, Terry Lake changed Yunkin. And this is what the party demands. You, you cannot advance in this party. You get a debate up there. First question I would ask is, is Joe Biden, was he elected in a legal and fair election? And that will be interesting. Asa Hutchinson, another former client of mine, will say yes. I think that Trump will say no. And what, what will Yunkin say? Maybe. He never would have gotten to a competitive primary in Virginia. He right. was able to get the nomination by this convention system that they have. So he never had to go in front of the general Republican electorate. He ran a racist campaign. While he was out there attacking Margaret Walker, he's sending his son to Georgetown Prep, which has seminars of Margaret Walker. Right. He knew what he was doing. So you can't do this halfway. You can't be sort of for democracy while you're trying to rise in an anti-democratic party. You have to just confront it. The only person really who's, there's really no one doing that. And, you know, they very cleverly have said that you can't get in a debate unless you'll endorse the nominee. And this is where the whole language of this, Molly, is, is, is very deceptive. Because saying, I will support the nominee of a party, it's like saying, nice to meet you, when you're meeting someone you're really not glad to meet. It's just, it's just a social convention almost. Right. I'll support the nominee right. of the party. Banal, harmless, whatever. But it's not when that person wants to destroy the, the democracy. How do you deal with this? So Aza Hutchinson, who I think has run of, in candidates, he's run the most honest campaign. I don't know if you've been following, but he's the one when Trump was indicted in New York. He said, we have to respect the, the jury system. He's a former U.S. attorney. But I heard an interview with him and he was saying that he wants to be in the debates. And yes, he will say that he will support the nominee of the party because you have to say that to be in the debates. So what is Chris Christie going to do? Another, another former client of mine. Uh, is he going to say he'll support the nominee? The irony of this is the party is being destroyed by abandoning the values that it claimed to say that it was for. You know, this was the party that was the character counts party. Peggy Newman wrote a book, When Character Was King. And had it believed in that and stuck by it, it would never have accepted Trump. But once you go down that road, you can't go back. You can't, no. And, and that's why, you know, what I thought when I was working in the party were values turned out to be marketing slogans. Right. You know, I was the idiot that like when, you know, Chevrolet runs an ad saying that they're the heartbeat of America. I was taking my Chevy to like a car cardiologist. <laughs> so let me ask you. In Florida, you have DeSantis fighting with Disney. 
we're finding ourselves in this, uh, you know, Republican v. capitalism versus capitalism kind of debacle. What do you think about that? Well, it's insane. You know, I heard an interview with Larry Hogan, another client of mine, former client, you know, just sort of laughing about it. Like, is there a governor of America that doesn't want Disney? It is the most anti-conservative thing imaginable. And DeSantis is a quintessentially sort of small damaged person. Trump is sort of a quintessentially big damaged person. (laughs) They're both damaged. To go out and attack the happiness company, (laughs) right? It's almost like we were setting up a Saturday Night Live joke, like what if the governor of Florida attacked Disney? You know, you got in a fight with Mickey Mouse and he's losing. I mean, it used to be, so we go from Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall to I'm in a fight with Mickey Mouse. It is the smallness of it. It is the bathroom and bedrooms party. Right. Ron DeSantis spends more time talking about the bathrooms and the genitalia of underage girls and boys to anyone who is not on a watch list or not a convicted pedophile. It is just weird. Normal people don't do this. But they think it's a winner for them. I mean, that they're responding to the someone has told them this idea is a winner for them. Right. I mean, they're not just coming up with this out of nowhere. Well, someone has said it's a winner in a Republican primary. I think they're wrong. Is that Bannon? You know, I, I'm not in that room. Right. I I wouldn't be surprised if it is DeSantis and his wife. You know, this whole idea that Ron DeSantis won Florida by 19 points, so therefore he has great skill as a national Mm -hmm. politician. Okay, I worked for Bill Weld, Massachusetts, Republican governor. He won re-election by 33 points. In a blue state. In Massachusetts. That didn't mean that the Republican Party had changed and he could take over the Republican Party. Rick Perry won re-election by double digits in Texas. And how'd he do when he ran for president in 2012? And he's running again. Yeah. Mick Romney took him apart in one debate. DeSantis ran against Charlie Crist. Charlie Crist was a client of mine. I did all of Charlie's races when he was a Republican and he won every one. But in the history of modern politics in America, no switcher has won a race for his former job. So Charlie lost. So they take that. There's just a need to invent DeSantis by the National Review crowd. He knows which fork to pick up. He is well-educated. You know, he, he won't embarrass you. He won't talk about having sex with his daughter in public. But that's where the threshold sort of is. But here's a guy talks about physically assaulting Fauci. I want to throw this little mm-hmm. elf across the Potomac. I mean, there was a time when just saying that in itself would be disqualifying. A governor f- talking about taking a doctor who's saving millions of lives, who has saved millions of lives, and assaulting them? I mean, you would say that person is bad. The essence of this whole trans thing is a way to refight same-sex marriage. And it never was accepted by a lot of Republicans. They just got quiet about it. And they're trying to relitigate that. It's very much a party about going back to the past, afraid of the future. Iowa is a very, we could have a whole conversation. I've done all these Iowa primaries. It takes 33,000 votes to win Iowa, right? That's like a little more than the student body of the University of Texas. (laughs) Jeff Rowe is running that campaign. He ran Ted Cruz's campaign. He has a list of the people who voted for Ted Cruz and nobody moves in Iowa. So Mitt Romney and had run in 2008 and come in second in Iowa caucus. In 2012, our plan initially was to skip the Iowa caucus. And Mitt used to call it the La Brea Tar Pits of politics. (laughs) Easy to go in, hard to get out. But we had this list of everyone who voted for Mitt. And we kept going back to this list, thinking that they would drop off if Mitt wasn't out there campaigning. And by kind of the End of November, they were still for Mitt. So it was like, okay, we'll do it. So Mitt Romney campaigned eight days in Iowa and won it more or less. That's a path to victory potentially for Trump, for DeSantis, to take the Cruz list and run a very nuts and bolts campaign. He could win Iowa. Stuart Stevens, thank you so much. Great to talk. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. 
a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Jason Stanley is a Yale professor and author of How Fascism Works. Welcome to Fast Politics, Jason Stanley. Thank you so much. It's really great to be in conversation with you. Well, very excited. And you have two books, but, you know, you're a brilliant academic. But How Fascism Works and How Propaganda Works. Why are you the person of the hour? So my first piece for The New York Times in 2011, I think, was on birtherism, Trump's conspiracy theory about Obama. So I've been tracking this kind of rise in disturbing propaganda memes like conspiracy theories that unify figures against enemies and are sort of problematic in, in liberal politics and liberal democratic politics. And I had always been studying fascist propaganda that sort of my interests have been in my training is in philosophy of language and linguistics. And I really got interested in in the structure of propaganda, how lots of different versions of propaganda work. And fascism was, of course, part of that background. And it's something familiar, both from being a U.S. citizen and and, uh, and <laughs> parents' background. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your parents' background, because, I mean, I certainly as a Nepo baby, have found myself, you know, very affected by my parents' stories. But your story is pretty interesting. We talked about that. I'll begin with my mother. My mother was through both my parents survived parts of the Holocaust. My mother was in the gulag in Siberia from 1940 Jesus. to 1945. And then uh, which she always talked up. <laughs> right. Well, as well, she should. I mean, yeah. So because she wasn't being murdered along with her cousins and aunts and uncles in Poland. How did she end up in the gulag? And not shot over ditches. After the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, they split Poland and the Nazis took half, Stalin took the other half. And Stalin took 130,000 Polish Jews into the gulag in Siberia. 
and 80,000 survived. And it is the largest group of Polish survivors of the Holocaust, the ones who survived in Siberia. So they were repatriated back to Poland in 1945, where they encountered a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism, hatred, beatings, and killings. Yeah. And then in 1948, many of them left. My mother left at eight years old to New York City. And, and my father is German-Jewish from Berlin, and he was seven when he left Berlin in July 1939 and arrived in New York City, August 3rd, 1939. So just in the nick of time. But he experienced Kastallnacht. Both of them experienced very difficult childhoods, which is always bad when you're complaining to your parents about childhood. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But it did. But it obviously made an impression on you. Yes, I think I think a key moment, a key sort of linchpin is that my, my mother worked for 44 years in Manhattan criminal court. She oh, was wow. at Center Street during the Central Park Five case. And and so through her, I learned about racial fascism in the United States. I think that was one of my key. I learned she would always talk about the parallels she saw with how the criminal justice system treated black Americans and her own experience as a child. So that was something, you know, she was the first to tell me the Central Park Five were completely innocent, for instance. Oh, interesting. Even during that time when people thought they weren't, right? Right. As you and I know, at the time, very few people thought they were innocent, but everyone 100 Center Street knew they were innocent. <laughs> oh, so interesting. How? You know, my mom was disgusted with me when I didn't realize that. She's like, it was a horrible crime and their sentences were so low. How could you not figure out that we all knew they were innocent? Oh, interesting. Because there was no physical evidence. Right. <laughs> There was no evidence at all. We had one of the Exonerated Five on this podcast because he's running for office. It, in the district I'm sitting yes, in yes. right now. Yeah, yeah. And he's incredible. Yeah. And has so much forgiveness in his heart. I don't know how you have that kind of forgiveness in your heart after. Yeah. But that speaks to this idea that you write about this way in which Trump was able to capture a hard mentality the same way. So talk us through sort of how that happened. First of all, we have this history of racial fascism here. Yeah. We sort of got rid of it in our national politics in, uh, in the 1960s around the civil rights movement. And Trump has always been leaning into this past and the vilification of supposed black crime and black corruption. From CNN town hall, he again reiterated the lies that in black in cities with large black populations, there was massive corrupt voter fraud. So which is just straightforward racist trope dating back to Reconstruction when they said black politicians were too corrupt to run right, right. democracy. Now we're getting a much more sort of explicitly fascist structure. The highlighting of Ashley Babbitt's killing January 6th, He's representing her as the Nazis represented forced vessel. Yes. The stormtrooper who was valorized as a martyr. And the person who shot Ashley Babbitt was black. So if you notice, Trump called him a thug. Right. Of course, the accepted code word for black people. So Trump has continuously leaned into this kind of familiar white supremacy, uh, that that is part of American history, but also combines it with a kind of patriarchal machismo that is going to bring in a multiracial coalition, as we're seeing behind a kind of macho strutting authoritarian. And now we have this kind of valorization of January 6th. Instead of being a coup against democracy, it's being presented as a great patriotic moment in American history. All that is incredibly dangerous. Yeah, I would think. Explain to me how multiracial fascism works, because it runs so counterintuitive, but it's clearly something you talk about. Go on. First of all, patriarchy, right? Right. Lots of groups have macho men threatened by feminism, LGBT, etc. Patriarchy has always been central to fascism. It's, it's uh, you know, Ruth Ben-Ghiak's book, Strong Men, isn't about yeah. fat, but she emphasizes the sort of macho, strug uh, strutting male figure that's so 
appealing for authoritarian-minded voters. Secondly, when you think about American fascism, you have to think about what is the underlying group ideology, social identity that is as its basis. In Germany, in Nazi Germany, it was at the Aryan race. Here, it's Christian nationalism. So the way white Christian nationalism works is, you know, you're told about the great, the great achievements of the founders, and you're told the founders were white Christian men. And then you're given a list of white Christian men and their great achievements. Then you think, oh, wow, it's the white Christian men who made this country what it is. And that's the structure of what we see. But white Christian nationalism is also going to be Christian nationalism. <laughs> and so Christianity is going to draw a lot of people in. Certain fascist movements succeed when they can gather different groups together in an electoral coalition. The different groups often have conflicting agendas. One group white supremacists, another group anti-Semites, another group billionaires who want to use all that stuff to get their taxes cut. So fascism succeeds at the ballot box when a fascist leader can convince multiple groups that authoritarianism is preferable to democracy. Say you're black. I mean, you just identify with the misogyny more than the racism? Yeah. <laughs> you identify more with misogyny than, than the racism. It's not just patriarchy. Uh, it's also anti-socialism, this sort of libertarian capitalism. We're going to protect private property. Uh, the Nazis were obviously anti-capitalist because capitalism was a global system, but they were very strongly protective of private property. They didn't believe Jews deserved private property. They constantly attacked institutions as Marxist and represented the Weimar Republic and government institutions as threats to private property, the pri private property of Aryans. And so we find that dynamic here where it's also anti-socialism. That's part of it. And that's going to attract libertarians, it's going to attract libertarian-minded people of, of all races. If you were to game this out in your head and you were to think, like, what would, in your mind, the smartest thing for Biden to be doing right now? Because remember, it's like he's running against Trump. This Republican Party has embraced all of these tenants now. So this is no longer right. Like, is Trump more fascist than DeSantis? I mean, they seem the same to me. Correct. What we have is a fascist social and political movement. In the literature, you divide the social and political movement phase from the regime phase. We don't have a fascist regime. However, we've allowed many of the states in this country to become little Hungarys. Right. Florida is the best example, but Texas, too. Florida, Texas, North Carolina. What, you know, the Florida voters voted to give former felons uh, back their rights, voting rights, which would have enfranchised over a million Floridians. DeSantis simply overruled that all the voter suppression. Uh, you, you have super legislators of Republicans in 50-50 Republican-Democrat states like North Carolina. So you have authoritarianism. None of that is democratic. I had allowed that to happen. So then the question is, why is Republicans are, quite frankly, reasonably saying, why can't we do that at the national level? <laughs> so that's what's going on. So what can be done against it? So a lot of us in communication with the various people in the Biden administration I think there was a strong urge to sort of go New Dealish in response. Right. Um, what? When's the last time the United States faced a sort of concerted, explicit fascist movement? I mean, I think Jim Crow is a fascist regime, and that lasted very long to some extent, still lasts. But in the 30s, we faced explicit fascism, and we beat it because you know, of the supposedly that's the sort of commonly held belief. We beat it because of the New Deal which was a ton of money going to the white working class, the poor whites and Du Bois's sense. And so I think the Biden administration has taken that tactic as the Inflation Reduction Act, warts and all, is an enormous expenditure on green jobs. It spends a ton of money to working class Americans. That's been the tactic of the Biden administration. Unfortunately, we're in what I've called fascism's legal phase, where They've taken over courts. They've taken, they're changing the laws to make minority rule a permanent thing. 
yeah, I mean, I'm watching it happen in real time. How do we stop this? Molly, unfortunately, I'm not an expert on how do we stop it. We're really <laughs> good at describing what's happening. <laughs> right. And what will it happen if we don't? <laughs> if you look at the literature and look at, you know, fighting racial fascism in the United States, fighting fascism abroad in Europe, Latin America, labor unions turned out to be key. It's something that sort of I spent a lot of years grappling with in the literature, but then you see it in real time right now. You see the labor unions fighting the attack, the teachers union fighting the attack on education. You see labor movements across the country gaining more popularity for labor. And uh, fascism is always intensely anti-labor union. So we see that in the South. We see in the South, uh, all these states are anti, harshly anti-labor. It goes with the racism. So the labor movement has to be central in the response here. So interesting. So talk to me about propaganda, how propaganda works, and a little bit about how you got there and how we're seeing propaganda right now. So earlier I talked about how my mother, who's a Holocaust survivor, recognized parallels between the criminal justice system and what was happening to Black Americans in the criminal justice system and what she experienced as a child. James Baldwin says this at one point in his essay, Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white, but brilliant, where he says, he's talking about Jewish people. He's like, we know you're glad not to be us. Right. <laughs> no use <laughs> what we, so my, I grew up with that. And so in like 2010, once I started to realize the scope of mass incarceration and that many of us white Americans had lived through the 90s thinking it was a great decade when, right, when it know, wasn't, it was like a horrific decade for our fellow black citizens. And, you know, 1991, the crime rate starts dropping precipitously. And then we had super predator theory. We had the Clintons leaning into vilification of black Americans to win votes at the ballots. And I realized I'd been subject to propaganda. Like I had completely missed a human rights disaster. It was happening in front of you happening in front of me. Tim Snyder and I teach a course, Mass Incarceration in the United States and the Soviet Union. Oh, wow. I would want to take that class. That sounds amazing. It is. It is great. So trying to figure out how my country, my home country, the United States, became the world's largest incarcerator, how the formerly in, in 2014, the formerly enslaved population of the United States was 10% of the world's prison population and wondering how you could sort of wander around in the streets of America thinking this was a free country when it's a giant prison state <laughs> was what got me into the topic of propaganda. And it led me to think about the 1930s in Germany which was a happy time for many Germans who saw on the, out of the corner of their eye what was happening to my family and others. But, you know, it was a great time for most Germans. I started to think about how propaganda can mask for us what's going on right before our eyes. A lot of people, when Trump happened, they were surprised. But I wasn't surprised because I was working on this history of the United States. And when you're when you're kind of brutalizing one portion of the population with militarized police and prison, massive prisons. Why wouldn't you then move to sort of general authoritarianism? You already have a kind of a lawlessness for part of the population. And Trump is leaning into the American tradition that justifies, that sort of raises hysteria about, you know, cities engulfed in crime, which Trump, of course, <laughs> has been doing his whole life supposed black crime and raises the ancient fears that white people need to protect themselves. So where does this go? We're out of time, but just give me a quick where this goes. Well, one thing that's optimistic is these are old forces. We shouldn't think that we're facing something new because when right. fascism comes, it repeats the practices of the past. So we see Ron DeSantis almost boringly going back to sort of scrubbed up versions of Jim Crow tactics, voter suppression, massive policing of the schools. So you have a white education that places white Christian nationalism center stage. So we faced this before. So we have historical understanding of what to do. We will need mass protests possibly at a certain point, and you'll need to raise alarms, something like the civil rights movement, where you raise alarms about 
the loss of democracy, where ultimately I think we have to make sure that all the states in the United States are actual democracies. We've let the authoritarianism go too far. Those mass protests actually work. I mean, they worked in Israel, but we're at a time. Please, Jason, I hope you will come back. Oh, yeah. I would love to anytime. Hi, it's Molly, and I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now, is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Adam Gopnik is a writer at The New Yorker and author of The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. Welcome to Fast Politics, Adam Gopnik. It's wonderful to be with you, Molly. It's been a joy to, you know, having known you so long, to have watched your evolution and, and to be listening to you all the time doing this and now to be a participant is a, is a special pleasure. Well, I am very excited to have you here. And I feel like you have also had many iterations. You have been doing this a long time and you have an incredible breadth of knowledge. And you have also, more importantly, a new book out. But first, let us talk about what the hell happened last night with that CNN town hall. You know, I was out actually seeing this new production of Oliver with Raul Esparza, and I was on a real high because it's wonderful. And then came back and idly did what none of us should ever do, which is click <laughs> on and see, well, well, how did that go? And then became aware of it. A million people can itemize all of the, the vile absurdities of the thing. What I will say is, and I say this not in self-congratulation, but in perpetual warning, that back in 2016, when people yes. were still coming off Trump, I was writing urgently, desperately in The New Yorker, where I where I work, in a note of political excitation that was not not typical for me about how dangerous this guy was, how uniquely dangerous he was. Now, I sound like Trump. I may have been the first person to say this. <laughs> I actually think I was, that he was fascist. Now, we can argue back and forth, Molly, about, you know, how what we want to call fascist and whatnot. The point about making that point is not that Trump is on an absolute moral plane with Hitler or Mussolini. Right, or right, right. Hitler, Paul Paul. It's exactly when, you know, go, you go see the dermatologist to show him a mole to ask if it's a melanoma or just a pimple, not because it's already stage four cancer, but because you want to know what the pathology is and what the outcome is likely to be. When you recognize that Trump is essentially part of an ongoing authoritarian right-wing nationalist movement that we call for short fascist, you recognize how dangerous he is. And back in 2016, when I was saying that, saying that he represented, he that he was an absolutely hostile figure against anything one could recognize as the liberal democratic order. I was perpetually, as I'm sure you were too, and as other prescient people were, mocked and derided and alarmist by the full range of New York Times conservatives. And I was right. We all were right. Yeah. I want to read a line you have here. So you have this paragraph, the Murdoch media conglomerate has been ordered to acquiesce. It's no surprise that it has. But Trump's other fellow travelers, including Roger Stone, the Republican political operative and dirty trickster. And then, and you mentioned Alex Jones, a ranting conspiracy theorist who believes in a global plot wherein an alien force not of this world is attacking humanity, not to mention Jones' marketing of the theory that Michelle Obama is a transvestite who murdered Joan Rivers. But I think this is the line. These are not harmless oddballs Trump is flirting with. This is not the lunatic fringe. These are the lunatics. Thank you, Molly. I like that line. (laughs) And I wrote it a long time ago, seven years ago, and it was ever more true last night. This is not the lunatic fringe. Every political party has got a center and a left wing and a right wing, and it's got nuts around the edges. And we can recognize it, whether it's the Labour Party in Britain or the Democratic Party in the United States. Take your pick. This is not the lunatic fringe that Trump is flirting with. These are the lunatics whom he speaks for, you know, and we have 
become so acclimatized to it. And to use a word that I know is overused, but is essential here, it is still so much in the process of being normalized. You know, of all the things I read this morning about it, I thought that what Michael Fanone, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The police officer. The police officer was the shrewdest and the most acute. He said, what happened last night is that you're setting up the idea that accepting or not accepting the results of an election is a choice. Um, politicians choose to accept the results of an election or not. You can say, oh, it's uh, you're wrong. But then he answers, I'm right. And therefore, you have set up right away a kind of ping and pong. Well, maybe he's a little bit right. And so we've never before had in American history, at least since the Civil War, a figure who was aggressively and unmistakably an enemy of uh, the democratic constitutional order. And to continually treat this guy as a political phenomenon, as CNN did last night, as the New York Times insists on doing day after day, as simply one more figures on this spectrum as, well, maybe flirting with the lunatic fringe, but not actually uh, embedded with the lunatics, I think is just an historic mistake of such enormous proportions that I fear the consequences. And I fear them particularly, Molly, because I, I wrote a piece early on in the Biden administration called Biden's Invisible Ideology. And what I was trying to, it was meant to be a kind of sympathetic account because what I sensed with no inside knowledge was that Biden and the people around him do, who deliberately did not take on all of Trump's mishigas about the election and the rest of it had a smart, intuitive sense. There's a great old boxing coach named Charlie Goldman who once said, a never play a guy in a game he invented because he didn't invent it to lose at it. And that's very wise, right? And if you play Trump's game, you lose because that's Trump's game. I understand the logic of that. And they decided to invest in restoring and renewing institutions, which I profoundly believe in, and in lowering the price of insulin when Trump was screaming about his wall and the rigged election. Right. I recognize the, the decency of that, and I recognize a certain kind of logic in it too. But in every historical struggle between institutionalists and fascists, the fascists win because they do not respect the institutions. And right. the institutionalists are left looking around at the end saying, hey, what happened here? We did everything right. We did everything correct. And they're shocked that they have lost and that the institutions they were trying to defend and protect have been destroyed. And I am terribly frightened that we are seeing this here. And what happened last night was one more episode in the destruction of liberal institutions. Yeah, Jesus. All right, so talk to me about the book. Well, the book is actually, my new book, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery, is actually in an odd way that I've been trying to articulate out on the road, and I am the Willie Loman of American literature, Molly. <laughs> the Mystery of Mastery. Exactly. I go from town to town with my satchel of books trying to be well-liked like Willie and selling them. One of the things I've learned on the road is people ask me often, because my last book, um, A Thousand Small Sanities, was explicitly a defense of liberalism, by which I mean not just the you know progressive wing of the Democratic Party, but the much broader moral adventure of trying to have democratic procedures and egalitarian institutions in the world, that that was what that last book was about. And people say, this new book, where are the politics in this new book? Because it's all about my own quixotic adventures in learning to do new things in middle age. I learned to drive, I learned to draw, I learned to box with my daughter, Olivia, who you know well, yes. I to dance, which is the, the climax of the book, is Olivia and I dancing out in the Esplanade, real dancing, foxtrot and waltz with the teacher to Sinatra Records out in the Esplanade in Central Park at the height of the pandemic. That's the image that the book ends on. Oh, wow. So the question people have asked is, well, is this sort of a diversion from that? You know, it's kind of saying, woo, we got through that by the skin of our teeth, perhaps what we did. So now we can go out and, and enjoy ourselves and improve ourselves. And that's not really my intention at all. On the contrary, and forgive me if I sound a little portentous about it, what I was trying to do was talk about pluralism. Because the key, I think the key idea, the key concept for liberal democracy is the idea of pluralism. It's as important, if not more important than the idea of democracy or the idea of um, equality. Or It's about the idea that we accept the notion that many, many different kinds and classes and creeds can coexist without killing each other, which is a very new idea in the history of humanity. The preceding idea was always that, well, all of those creeds and classes and kinds will war with each other and massacre each other until somebody dominates. That's the core ideology, by the way, of Trumpism, as it is of all fascism, that all of life 
is simply a contest for domination and somebody will win and someone will lose and the winner will destroy the loser, will exterminate the loser. And the core idea of liberalism as it's grown up since the Enlightenment is exactly the idea that you can coexist, that you can not only accept, but embrace a pluralism of different kinds. You know, the image I used in the book is one I like, you know, you go out on a Friday night into Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and the Satmars are celebrating in their way, and the Lubavitchers in their way, and the hipsters in another way. And sometimes you can't tell the hipsters from the Hasidim, right? Because they dress alike. Right. That's the glory of a liberal city like New York, is we coexist. We Sometimes we have difficulties, often we do. But basically, we accept that principle of pluralism. The point I'm trying to make in this book is that principle of political pluralism rests on a principle of a pluralism of pleasures, that we only can get to a pluralism of opinions if we're rooted in things we genuinely like doing, if we're rooted in all the little activities that bring us together as people across classes and kinds that show us in advance that it is possible to coexist. You know, my hero in this regard, and it's funny, you know, I mentioned that the book ends with Olivia and I dancing together in Central Park, is Frederick Law Olmsted. He was the great designer. Point about Olmsted that he was, ho-ho, a journalist, a writer before he was a park designer. And he went south to the slave states and he said, not only is this an obviously uh, brutal, cruel, oppressive culture, but it oppresses the the masters in, in its own ways, not to mention obviously the slaves. And one of the ways it does is it eliminates the possibility of what he called beautifully commonplace civilization. That is all the small ways in which people interact with each other on a daily basis. Because if you live in a society of fear and terror, you can't have those kinds of interactions. And he wanted Central Park to be a place for commonplace civilization, a place where people, a park for people of very different backgrounds, very different kinds, very different pleasures could all coexist in a pluralistic way. And this book, by talking about the, the my own pluralism of pleasures, learning to drive from an Ecuadorian immigrant, learning to draw from uh, an inspired but kind of crazy old style reactionary, uh, not crazy, but uh, you know, determinedly backward looking, learning to do or at least observing magic with a brilliant, irascible Brooklynite. It's all about how every time that in everything we do, we are necessarily everything we are. You know, when you learn to do something like driving, you are forced into the broader society of drivers. You're forced to confront the way that that cities are self-organizing, that we amazingly, if you like, Molly, we sort of obey traffic laws even when nobody is is enforcing them because we recognize that it's the only way all of us can coexist um, in traffic it is, is through those things. So that in that Olmstedian sense, a pluralism of pleasures always has to be the foundation for pluralistic politics. And that's very much what this book is about. Yeah, so interesting. What was the thing that you learned where you were like, I'm not going to be able to learn this? Well, drawing, you know, classical drawing. Like I say at some point in the book that what we basically do in life, we like to tell ourselves, oh, I'm just concentrating on the things I'm good at. Basically, what we do is we banish the things we're bad at so we don't have to think about them. And, you know, we spend our time in elementary school just being, you know, shamed and humiliated and pained every day by everything we can't do. We can't do algebra. We can't do trigonometry. We can't do drawing. And then we find a niche in life where nobody asks us to do those things. And then we think we've actually gotten good at something. We haven't. We've just banished the bad. And drawing is one of those things for me. I, You know, you put me in front of a, a sheet of paper and I stab away mm-hmm. at the drawing paper as though like Lady Macbeth with a dagger. And I had a wonderful teacher, Jacob Collins, and he got me to loosen my wrist and to draw underhand instead of overhand. And step by step, he got me relaxed enough so that I could begin the business of drawing nude bodies in in half light. That was the most resistant thing, because when I first tried it, I just had tears in my eyes. I thought, I will never be able to do this. And I never can claim to be good at it, but I'm certainly better at it than I was when I when I started. And that was the single most cheering thing. Driving as well. You know, I didn't learn to drive until I was in my 50s. And uh, Luke and I got our licenses literally not just on the same day, but within the same hour from the same driving judge, from the same driving inspector. And I think that may be the only time in New York City history where a 55-year-old father and a 20-year-old son 
I'm sure it's not. No, probably not. Yeah, because this is New York. This is New York. Everything has happened at least once. Right. And there's nothing so peculiar that it has happened many it's times. True. It's part of the joy of living in New York, actually. Nothing singular can happen. Exactly. I want to ask you, because I have relatives, close relatives suffering from dementia. There's some evidence that learning new things can actually grow these pathways in your brain and can make you less likely to become demented. I, too, have a close relative struggling with dementia. And yes, that is one of the things that comes up again and again in the literature. I, I don't want to hold it out as some kind of panacea because it isn't it is doesn't have that form. But what is certainly and arguably true is that the lives of the aging are immeasurably enriched by pursuing new activities, even if they're they're at war with their own brains, as tragically so many uh, can be. I did a piece, Molly, about the science of aging and the tragedy of it is, is that medicine has given us 20 years of extra life, grosso modo, but has nothing to do yet for Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's. But what's certainly true is that our access to happiness through our absorption in a new activity is just as profound, if not more profound, at 65 or 70 or 80 as it is when we're kids. You know, the basic rhythm of accomplishment, which is the thing I'm writing about, whether you're learning, you know, Beatle guitar chords when you're 12 years old or you're learning, as I did, to box when you're in your 60s, the basic rhythm is always the same. You break it down into its smallest parts. You know, boxing, you don't unleash your belligerence. My boxing teacher is an incredibly sweet, cool guy named Joey Contrada, and he once said very unselfconsciously, oh, it was terrible the other day in the boxing gym, a fight broke out. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, you learn this very tight choreography of jabs and crosses and slips and undercuts. And that's what boxing is about. And it's very exhausting at first because none of that sequence will make sense to you. You know, you're thinking about it all the time. But with passion and perseverance, it turns it into, over time, a somewhat seamless sequence where you're not any longer thinking about throwing the right punches in the right order, they're just coming, they're happening. And the high we get, you know, psychologists sometimes call that the flow, that we enter into the flow. But I just think of it as happiness, because what's happiness after all, except absorption in some activity, meaningful activity outside ourselves. That's when we all feel happiest, including sex, one might add, but and taking in everything else as well. And that's always available to us. And if there's a kind of message for those of us who are who are entering middle age, to put it politely, that the book wants to send is that pursuing a passion, a new accomplishment imperfectly provides you with every bit as much of that flow, every bit as much of that cognitive opiate of absorption as anything we did when we were 12 years old. So interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Adam Gopnik. Tell us what the book is called again. I will do it in the intro, too. It's called The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery by me. And as I say, it's an account of my adventures in learning and struggling. It's in the mystery of mastery. I don't claim mastery, but I claim some insight into the mysteries of mastery. And as your listeners now know, and no one else does, its undergirding is to be about um, how uh, pluralism of pleasures underlies pluralistic politics. So interesting. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure talking to you, Molly, always. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung Fast, what do you see with this debt ceiling thing? I think people are starting to get a little nervous. It's a completely fake thing that Republicans have decided they can do to make life hard for Democrats. It started in 2011. When there's a Republican president, Republicans pass the debt ceiling. When there's a Democratic president, Republicans don't pass this debt ceiling. And so we know it's bullshit. And for that, as Republicans to keep the entire federal government hostage, they are our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.